The sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 50. The New Testament reading will be Romans 8, 18 through 30. Uh, so this brings us to a conclusion of our study through the book of Genesis. Uh, as I said last week, uh, next week we will begin a study of the book of Ephesians, which I'm looking forward to very much. Uh, but this study has been very good. I, I hope that you agree. It's been very good to consider uh, the book of Genesis and the foundational truths that are contained uh, within it. Uh, Mike, would we uh, be able to unplug that refrigerator and not forget to plug it back in at the end of uh, the service? Maybe an alarm would be helpful there or something like that. Thank you. Genesis chapter 50, uh, verse 1. Here now the reading of God's most holy word. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them 
and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mekir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let us now turn to Romans chapter 8 and read verses 18 through 30. Romans 8. 18 through 30. Here Paul writes to the Romans, saying, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So far the reading of God's most holy word, we pray that the Lord would add his blessing now to the preaching of it on this Lord's day. We have come now to Genesis chapter 50. And... In this chapter, three things are brought to a conclusion. One, the story of Jacob's descendants, which began all the way back in 37.2 with the words, these are the generations of Jacob. That section is brought to a conclusion. We are to remember that the book of Genesis is divided into ten sections, each beginning with the phrase, these are the generations of, or something similar. And here in chapter 50, we hear of Jacob's burial. And this is how each of these sections in Genesis have concluded. The section concerning the generations of Abraham concluded with Isaac and Ishmael coming together to bury their father, for example. The same was true of the section regarding the generations of Isaac. Jacob and Esau came together to bury him. And here we learn that all of the sons of Jacob came together to bury their father in the family burial plot with the Egyptians also paying tribute. And we will say more on that in just a moment. Uh, Two, the story of the life of Joseph is brought to a conclusion. Now, I have just said uh, that chapters 37 through 50 are all about the generations or descendants of Jacob in general. 
But the focus has been upon one of Jacob's sons in particular, Joseph. We've learned of his most incredible journey from being the favorite in his father's house down into the pit, down into Potiphar's house, and then into prison before being raised to the highest position within the palace of Pharaoh. Here in Genesis 50, the incredible story of the life of Joseph is brought to a conclusion for we are also told of his death. And three, chapter 50 brings the whole of the book of Genesis to a conclusion. If you look to the next page in your Bible, you will see the opening chapter of the book of Exodus. And although many years pass between the events recorded for us in Genesis 50 and the events recorded in Exodus 1, the book of Exodus, notice, picks up where Genesis leaves off, saying, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew, to, grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so here I simply want you to notice that the book of Exodus does not tell a new story. Instead, it continues the story that was begun in the book of Genesis, but has concluded here in chapter 50. And so now let us turn our attention to Genesis chapter 50, which does in fact bring this book, which is a book about the beginning of things, to an end. First of all, let us consider the story of the burial of Jacob as recorded in verses 1 through 14. And three things are mentioned here. First of all, the preparation of Jacob's body to the mourning over his death. And three, the burial of Jacob in the land of Canaan. First of all, we are told of the preparation of Jacob's body. Jacob we are told, was embalmed according to the Egyptian custom. We are told that 40 days were required for the embalming. The custom of the Hebrews was to bury their dead soon after death, but the Egyptians were concerned to preserve the bodies of their dead, given their view of the afterlife. Now, we should not read into things too much here. Uh, Jacob and Joseph believed what all the Hebrews believed concerning the afterlife, but Jacob was embalmed by the Egyptians as commanded by Joseph, one, I think, to honor him, and two, to preserve his body for the long journey back to the land of promise. Uh, Jacob was concerned not to be buried there in Egypt, but to be buried in Canaan, along with his ancestors. And so Joseph commanded that his body be embalmed, in part to prepare for that unique circumstance in the journey that would follow. The thing that I want for you to notice here regarding the preparation of Jacob's body is the honor that was shown to him by the Egyptians. Honor was shown to him by the Egyptians. Secondly, we are told about the mourning over Jacob's death. It is here described to us in this passage. And again, I want for you to recognize that it is the mourning of the Egyptians that is emphasized here in this passage. And no doubt the children of Jacob also mourned but it is again the mourning of the Egyptians that is emphasized. The Egyptians wept for him for 70 days, we are told in verse 3. Death is always difficult, brothers and sisters, for it is unnatural. 
It might seem like a very strange thing to say that death is unnatural. Because for us, death has become one of the most natural of things. People are born, they live for a time, and they die. It is a part of life, we say. But here I mean that God created us in the beginning, not to die, but to live forever. This was His original design. So death, and here I am speaking of human death, was not a part of the original created order. Instead, death intruded along with the entrance of sin into the world. Death is the just punishment for sin. In this sense, it is natural to us. Um, It is natural to us in that all die. But in another sense, it is not natural to us because God did not originally create us in this way to experience death, but rather to be confirmed in glory and to live forever and ever. And I think this is why we grieve over death so bitterly. Something deep within the soul of man knows that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. The soul was not made to be separated from the body. And loved ones long to be together, not just for a time, but forever, and to never part ways. And so we grieve over death, I think in part because we intuitively know that this is not how things are supposed to be. Though death is not natural to us, if considered from the vantage point of our original condition, it is now the most common of things. Men and women live, they die, and no one is exempt from this. And brothers and sisters, this leads me to think that it is very important for us to square with this reality, uh, that all will die. Only a fool will live life oblivious to his or her mortality. And I think this is why the psalmist prays to God in this way, saying, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What is the psalmist asking for? He's crying out to God and saying, Lord, make us wise. Give us wisdom. And he knows that one of the key components of wisdom is this acknowledgement that we are not going to live forever, but we'll surely die someday. In fact, our days are numbered. Therefore, we are to live with purpose and intentionality. The, the wise man, the wise woman lives each day with purpose and intentionality, knowing that tomorrow is not guaranteed to them and that their days will not go on forever in this life, but will indeed come to an end. The wise man lives being mindful of the brevity and frailty of life. We must know that life is short. It is short for those that we love, and it is short also for ourselves. And so we are wise to make the most of our time here on earth. And what does it mean to make the most of our time? What does it mean to make the most of a day? It it means that we live not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. The non-believing world will not talk in this way. If you ask them, what does it mean to make the most of a day? They will say, it is to live for pleasure. It is to live for pleasure. But what do we say in Christ Jesus? To make the most of a day is to live not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. It means that we are to live not for our own pleasure, but to please others. It means that we live not to store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
I think that many in this world fail to square with their mortality. They have not gained that heart of wisdom. They have not yet numbered their days and considered that they are limited. But in saying this, I do realize that some are prone to fall into the ditch on the other side of the road and to obsess over the thought of sickness and death. And to you, if this is your temperament, I I do say we must not fear. We must learn to live according to wisdom and to walk by faith. We must know that God has numbered our days. We must learn to live with this purpose and intentionality. But we must also know that we cannot add anything to our lives by worrying. Worry will only take from you, brothers and sisters. It has nothing at all to give. We must learn to trust God with our lives, for He holds our lives in His hand, and He loves us in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures tell us that there is no fear in love, but that perfect love casts out fear. And so let us walk carefully on the road of life, therefore. Let us be mindful of our mortality, but never fear it, for in Christ Jesus we do have the victory. When Jacob died, Those who loved and respected him mourned over his death. The Egyptians wept for him 70 days, we are told. And I do notice here that in both the Hebrew and Egyptian cultures, time was set aside for mourning. We see this often in the scriptures, in fact. In our culture, I have noticed that things are less defined. Maybe in some subsects of our culture they are defined like this, but in my experience, things are less defined when it comes to mourning. We mourn, but our culture does not necessarily provide us with any norms. But I can think of three benefits to a pronounced and particular time for mourning, such as the one that is described to us here regarding the Egyptians mourning over Jacob for 70 days in particular. First of all, I think that setting a time aside for mourning gives permission to the bereaved to grieve. In fact, more than giving permission, it actually encourages us to to, to grieve in a healthy manner. Two, setting aside time for mourning helps us to establish boundaries for our grief. If we are not careful, brothers and sisters, it is possible for our grief to run out of control. As with all of our affections... Grief is to be kept within proper bounds. Our anger must never turn into rage, friends. Fear must not overpower faith so that it hinders an obedient life. We must learn to control all of our emotions instead of allowing them to control us. And I am here saying that grief is no different. Grief must not be allowed to overflow its proper bounds, leading to inordinate sorrow, stealing away all joy, hindering us from living a life of thanksgiving to the glory of God. Whenever we lose a loved one, a certain sadness will remain with us all the days of our life. But here I am noting that there is a distinction between grief and sadness. And at some point we must move on from that intense and pronounced form of grief to live a life of thankfulness and joy once more. I think this is the second benefit to having a pronounced time for mourning as we see within the Hebrew culture along with the Egyptian and others around the world even to this present day. Three, I think setting a time, time aside for mourning does allow us to show honor to those who have passed. 
We must never idolize others, brothers and sisters, even in our mourning. Never should we pretend that they were something they were not, as if they were perfect in every way, etc. But I think it is right that we honor the dead. It is right that we give thanks to God for the lives of those who have gone before us. And having this pronounced time for grief, I think, helps us to do that well. Perhaps we need to be countercultural in this regard, brothers and sisters. Perhaps we need to learn to grieve better in Christ Jesus. We are to grieve, but not as those who have no faith, the Scriptures tell us. Again, I want for you to notice the honor shown to Jacob by the Egyptians. It is really quite astonishing. Not only did they take charge of preparing the body for burial, but it was the Egyptians who mourned. And not just for a day or two, but for 70 days, we are told, they mourned over the death of this foreigner, Jacob, this Hebrew, this sojourner in their land. Again, I do not doubt that the sons of Jacob also mourned. But here I am just drawing your attention to the fact that the text emphasizes that it was the Egyptians who mourned for 70 days. And then thirdly, we hear of the burial of Jacob. And I want you to notice two things about this. One, Jacob was buried not in Egypt, but in Canaan, according to his wish. This was an act of faith on Jacob's part and also on the part of his sons who followed through on his request. In requesting to be buried in Canaan, Jacob was demonstrating his faith in the promises of God. He truly believed that that land would belong to him through his descendants. He knew that that promise would come true. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all buried in Canaan, knowing that that land would be theirs through their descendants and certainly in the new heavens and earth. Two, notice again the involvement of the Egyptians. Pharaoh gave Joseph permission to go, but he also sent a very great company with Joseph. Chariots and horsemen went with them. These were sent for protection, no doubt. But notice that these also mourned for Jacob on the way. Verse 10, when they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, listen, listen to what they said. They noticed that this is a grievous mourning by who? By the Egyptians. This is the place where the Egyptians demonstrated deep sorrow and grief. They mourned grievously there at this place. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizriam. It is beyond the Jordan. I cannot help but think that the involvement of the Egyptians... In the preparation of Jacob's body and in mourning Jacob's death and in Jacob's burial is of great significance. Otherwise, why would it be so emphasized in this text? It would be natural for the text to simply say that Joseph and his brothers mourned the death of their father. But again and again, we are told of the Egyptians' involvement. And these are not peasants in the land. Maybe some were amongst them. But these were the elders, uh, the, the leaders within Pharaoh's house who accompanied Joseph in mourning the loss of this great man, Jacob. Their involvement is emphasized. It is a central feature of this text. And I think the reason for this is that in this little narrative, we have a picture of how through Israel, the nations of the earth would be blessed. I think that is what we are seeing here. We have yet another reminder of how through Israel, the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
We must never forget that the original promises made to Abraham, which were passed along to Isaac and Jacob, had the nations of the earth in view. And this is so significant to our understanding of Scripture, to our understanding of the story of redemption, to our understanding of the mission and purpose of Jesus the Christ. This is so central, brothers and sisters. We must not lose sight of it. To Abraham and Isaac Isaac and Jacob, it was said, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Those were words specifically given to Abram and passed on to the others. Throughout Genesis, we have been shown little glimpses of this, of how the nations were blessed by their relationship to Israel. And here at the end of Genesis, we see that the Egyptians had such love for Joseph, the Hebrew, and for Jacob, his father, that they mourned many days at his passing. Joseph came to the Egyptians in suffering, remember, He was a lowly servant at first. And then he dwelt among them. And in fact, he provided salvation for them from that famine that threatened. We are to see that Joseph the Hebrew was a great blessing to the Egyptians. And it appears that he won their hearts. And this was the purpose for Israel's existence too. They were blessed by God, chosen of Him, separated from all the nations of the earth, to be a blessing. They, being set, set apart by God from the nations, were to be used by God as an instrument to bring salvation to the nations. And all of this, of course, culminated in the Christ. He was born into this world a Hebrew. He came to save, not the Hebrews only, but people from every tongue tribe, and nation. And so I am saying that here in the, the Joseph story and in the story of Jacob going down into Egypt and Israel with him, we have a small picture of what God would do on a much larger scale through these people that He had chosen. Through them He would bring blessings to the nations. And here we see the Egyptians coming uh, to Jacob and mourning his death Their hearts have been won somehow. They have sincere affection for Joseph the Hebrew and his father. And indeed we have seen this take place on a much larger scale now that the Christ has come. Here we are today Gentiles according to the flesh, but giving honor and appreciation to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to the Christ that came from their loins. I love the scriptures, don't you? These themes are are, are present consistently. And here we see the plans and purposes of God being carried out and demonstrated before our very eyes. Brothers and sisters, the application I think is this. We must never lose sight of God's love for the nations. It It was because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And when we study the Old Testament, we must recognize that though for a time the kingdom of God on earth was confined to a particular people living in a particular land, the salvation of the nations was ever in view. Think of of the transition we're about to experience in the pages of Holy Scripture. We've already begun to experience it. At first, the promises of God concerning a coming Savior were delivered to Adam and to Eve in that curse that was pronounced upon the serpent. An elect line was kind of identified there in the early chapters of Genesis. But uh, in due time, one particular man was chosen and set apart. Abram, the the Hebrew, right? 
And we have seen this development that there is a particular people that God is showing favor to, a particular people that is going to be made into a great nation. The kingdom of God is going to be prefigured there in that people. And in fact, we're about to see it if we were to continue straight on in our study of the scriptures and go into the book of Exodus. We would see the nation of Israel come out. And from Exodus onward in the Old Testament, everything seems to be quite focused upon that people, that nation. You understand? But what I am here saying is that even in the Old Testament, we see that God's intention, God's purpose was not to bless Israel only, but to through them bless all the nations of the earth. When you read the prophets, look for this theme. They spoke of a coming day when the nations would be gathered in to Israel. That was their hope. That was their expectation that through Israel, the Christ would come and through the Christ, the nations Not just one nation, but the nations would be reconciled to God. And I am saying that true and biblical Judaism always understood that God's plan was to reconcile to Himself people from every tongue, tribe, and nation through faith in the Messiah that came from them. This is made abundantly clear when we read the New Testament Scriptures. Christ and the apostles were concerned not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. Simply remember how Christ commissioned His disciples before He ascended, saying, Go and make disciples of all nations. This, by the way, was one of the most controversial things which caused the Jews who did not understand the Scriptures to hate the Christ and His disciples. Many of them had lost sight of this purpose. They wrongly believed that everything was about them and their nation and their people. For them, the Christ would be the one who helped to overthrow Rome so that Israel might be an independent nation again. And Christ and His apostles were constantly fighting against that that misunderstanding, saying, no, Uh, through Israel and through the Christ, the nations of the earth are to be gathered in and blessed. They, many of the Jews living in Jesus' day, but not all of them, had forgotten why it was that they existed as a people not to be a reservoir of God's blessing, but a river. They were set apart and blessed so that they might be a blessing to the nations. Through them the Christ, who was and is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, mind you, was brought into the world. And friends, I am saying that we must not lose sight of God's love for the nations of this earth, even today. There are places, even still on this planet, where the good news has not yet been preached. We must pray, therefore, for the furtherance of the gospel amongst the nations. We are the nations, by the way. We are those Gentile peoples upon whom the light of the gospel has shone. But there are others still. There are others who have not yet heard the good news that Jesus, the Christ, has atoned for sins and that salvation is available through faith in Him. And so we must pray for those nations. We must pray that men and women would be sent to proclaim the gospel to them, that others would repent and believe, and that churches would be established in those lands, all to the glory of our great God and King. I think it is really astonishing, and as I have said, very significant, to see the Egyptians so involved in the mourning of the death of Jacob. It is an interesting way for the book of Genesis to conclude, if you think of it. It's as if Moses wanted the Hebrews to understand what was possible if they would only walk faithfully before God amongst the nations as Joseph did amongst the Egyptians. 
Remember that these Hebrews that we read of in the book of Exodus were delivered out of Egypt after being severely oppressed by the Egyptians. But it's as if Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, wanted to impress upon those Hebrews, upon their minds. These were the ones who originally received the book of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It was given to them. These scriptures were given to them. It's as if Moses wanted to say, though you were oppressed severely by these Egyptians, do not lose sight of this reality that God's love is also for them. That His plan is to bring them in and look at what is possible if we would only walk faithfully in obedience to our God amongst the nations. Their hearts might be one. Look what Joseph accomplished. See that the Egyptians, those who knew Joseph, mourned over the passing of Jacob, our forefather. This brings us now to the second portion of our text. Uh, We are to consider the interaction between Joseph and his brothers after their father's burial. We see in verses 15 through 21 that Joseph's brothers feared him, but that he forgave them yet again after his father had passed away. Verse 15, after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph saw, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. It's kind of understandable that Joseph's brothers thought this way. They thought that perhaps Joseph had been kind to them before, but only for their father's sake. Uh, Really, in their heart of hearts, they could not believe that Joseph had forgiven them truly and sincerely, given the wicked things that they had done to him all those years ago. They had doubts about the sincerity of his forgiveness. They considered how bad they were to him, and they thought, you know, maybe he was kind to us, but only for the sake of our father Jacob. They understood the severity of their sin. They understood that Joseph would do no wrong if he judged them, and they feared Joseph. And so they offered sincere repentance, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. I have this point of application to make. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bring each of us to this place wherein we realize the severity of our sin, understand that God would be just to judge, and out of a reverent fear of God, repent sincerely before Him and through faith in Christ say, please forgive the transgressions of your servant. Here we see something of how repentance, true repentance, does work. First, we realize the severity of our sin, that God is just and that He will judge. And we come with a sense of fear for God, reverence for Him, saying, please forgive us, O Lord. If we would come to know God in this way, we would find that God in Christ, like Joseph, are merciful. They are kind, eager to forgive us of all of our transgressions and to shower us with grace. I want for you to notice Joseph's wonderful response at the end of verse 17. First, we are told that Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept when he learned that his brothers thought this way about him. He wept when he learned that his brothers thought he would take vengeance upon them, as if the forgiveness he extended those many years earlier was somehow insincere. So here we see 
the sincerity of Joseph put on display, it broke his heart to know that his brothers would think that they had not truly been forgiven all those years ago when they first came before him and did not recognize him at first. And I do believe that some who have faith in Christ make the same error as the error that Joseph's brothers made. Sometimes even Christians, after repenting and believing upon Christ to the forgiveness of their sins, they go on living with a sense of guilt and shame before God. They find it hard to believe that Christ would actually pardon all of their sins, even their heinous sins. They assume that God and Christ still hold a grudge against them for those sins committed in years past. And friends, I am saying to you that this grieves Christ to the heart when you doubt the sincerity of His forgiveness. How important it is for the Christian to know that when God forgives us in Christ Jesus... He really forgives us. He forgives us sincerely and truly to all eternity. Even if you find it hard to believe, you better believe it because God's Word says it. That He has separated our sins from us as far as the East is from the West. He remembers them no more. He does not bring them to mind. He does not hold grudges against His people. But if we are in Christ Jesus... We have truly been cleansed. We have been pardoned. Now and forever. Verse 17. Again, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers even came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Listen to his words. Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In my opinion, this is the pinnacle of the book of Genesis here. Uh, What a wonderful, wonderful declaration of forgiveness that comes from, from Joseph. This is certainly the pinnacle of the story of Joseph. In these words, there is much for us to learn about forgiveness and God's ability to use even that which is evil to bring about good in the world. Am I in the place of God, Joseph said. Am I in the place of God? Joseph understood that God would set everything straight in the end. It wasn't his place, therefore, to hold grudges against his brothers or to judge them with the certainty with which only God can judge. Joseph, being a man and not God, was free, in fact obligated, to forgive his brothers. And you, friends, are also free to forgive those who have wronged you. You are to forgive others knowing how much you have been forgiven. And you are to forgive others knowing that God will set everything right in the end. It's not on you to hold grudges. It's not on you to make others pay. You are wonderfully free from that obligation. It is a heavy burden that you could not bear anyways. And for those of you who are holding on to bitterness even now or who have been bitter in the past, you know that it is a burden. When you are bitter and unforgiving, uh, the truth of the matter is, is it is you who pay the price for that and not the person who has sinned against you. Joseph then said, you meant it for evil. And I think this is significant. Here Joseph acknowledges that his brothers did what they did freely, 
They intended evil when they sold him into slavery all those years ago. They were in fact guilty of committing this terrible sin. But then Joseph said, God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Friends, there is a very important principle being established here. A very important theological point that is being made here in this narrative. We serve a God who is able to use that which is evil to bring about good. This is a very important thing for the people of God to know as they sojourn in this fallen world. We serve a God who is able to use that which is evil to bring about good. Notice that never does this minimize or dismiss the evil that others do. But it does give us hope and courage to know that God is sovereign even over the sinful actions of others. I read it earlier. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It's a very comforting passage for us to hold on to. In the story of Joseph, we have a clear illustration of this principle. His brothers meant evil against him. They did horrible things to him. Nothing can minimize the severity of the wicked things that they did. But Joseph knew that God meant it for good to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they were in that day. Again, I will say that knowing that God used the evil for good did not excuse the sinful actions of his brothers. But notice that it did help Joseph to forgive them once they were repentant. Knowing that God had a purpose for his suffering, I think this is what kept Joseph's heart tender and soft, enabling him to respond to his brothers in this way, saying, Do not fear, I will provide for your little ones. I think this was very important to Joseph, to know that his God was sovereign even over his suffering. I think it helped him from growing bitter. I think it helped him from becoming hopeless in this life. He knew that even his suffering that came about as the result of horrible things done to him, Somehow, God was using it for good. He did not know how at first. He could not see it when he was in the pit or when he was in Potiphar's house, even when he was in prison. But soon it became clear to him when he was raised to that position of power in Pharaoh's palace. It was there that he began to see the plans and purposes of God that were once a mystery. And here again, I have application. I I do wonder, friends, do you have it in you to forgive as Joseph forgave? Do you have it in you? And I hope so. In fact, you must. If you, if you claim to be a Christian, if you have been forgiven by Christ so much, you must forgive just as Joseph forgave his brothers. The Scriptures demand it. The Scriptures command it. And knowing that God has used even the sins of those who have sinned against us to refine us and strengthen us. I think it surely helps us along the way, doesn't it? To be able to recognize that even those who have wronged us, even all the suffering that we have experienced as a result of that, you know what? God has, has used this for good somehow. At the very least, even if we cannot see the bigger picture, we know that God has used even the, the sinfulness of others and wrongs committed against us to, to, to refine 
and to strengthen us. And I think this helps us in being able to forgive others. I've found this to be true in my life. When others mistreat me, I am tested and strengthened somehow. How will I respond to that mistreatment? Even that, is, even that test is a refining fire. Uh, will I sin in return or will I turn the other cheek, responding with love and kindness? Uh, will I hold a grudge or will I forgive? Suffering to one degree or another at the hands of others is truly a refining fire. And Joseph knew this. He was able to see that God could use that which was meant for evil for good, and I think it helped him to forgive, knowing that he was not in the place of God to take vengeance on his brothers. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, the Scriptures say, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head, which I think here means you will get his attention, either for good or for evil. It will either confirm him in his wickedness or draw him to repentance. Do not be overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 19-21. Thirdly, and very briefly, let us consider the account of of Joseph's death. Here we are told that Joseph lived to 110 years. Uh, This is an age that sounds more reasonable to us, and it is the age that the Egyptians actually considered to be ideal. We are told that he saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. So Joseph, we see, was a truly blessed man. Uh, But pay special attention to Joseph's last words. And notice the strength of his faith and the promises of God. The same faith that Jacob had, that Jacob was so eager to impress upon Joseph on his deathbed. The same faith that Joseph or Jacob was eager to, to pass along to his sons. We see it here in Joseph. He said, I am about to die, but God will visit you. He's speaking here to his relatives. God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land, the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Wonderful. And with these words, the stage is set for the exodus. Brothers and sisters, by way of conclusion, I will say, now that we have come to the end of our study of the book of Genesis, I do hope that you have a better understanding of what we mean when we say that the book of Genesis is a book about the beginning of things, as the name suggests. Here in this study, we have learned of the beginnings of the heavens and earth, of man and woman, and of God's covenantal dealings with us in the covenant of works. We have learned of the beginning of marriage, of sin, and also of grace, In Genesis, we have witnessed the beginning of the the nations of the earth with special attention given to one people, the Hebrews. They were chosen of the Lord. God entered into a covenant with them. We call it the Old Covenant. And finally, in Genesis, we have witnessed the beginning of the nation of Israel. At the end of Genesis, they were a relatively small people without a land, but God had promised to multiply them greatly, to give them Canaan, and to bless the nations of the earth through them by the Messiah that would come into the world uh, by their descendants. And so I hope that you do see that truly this book is foundational to our faith. 
May the Lord enable us to build upon the truths established here for our good and the glory of His name. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your most holy word. We thank You for the truths that are revealed here. We do confess that if You were to leave us to ourselves, we would be lost, Lord. We would be wandering in the darkness, but You have given us this light, the light of Your word. Help us to cherish it, O Lord. Help us to live according to it in obedience to all of Your commandments. We thank You for this wonderful book, this book of Genesis, written by Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit so long ago. We thank You for the foundational truths that are contained here. O Lord, help us to believe these things and to stand upon this rock. We pray it in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord and all of God's people say, Amen.